Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for leading us in song and prayer and preparing this time. Uh, children, you're dismissed. Children's Church, you may uh, exit. Walking. Walking, yes. As they're walking out, um, I think I'm just a little loud. To me, it sounds loud. Maybe not. It's just, it's okay. All right. Uh, do me a favor. Um, on the back of the bulletin, I believe it's there. Let me double check. There, there it is. Rex Stump, Pastor. My number, 419-583-7013 is on there. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Um, I, sometime this week, uh, it can be today. does not need to be now because my phone is off. But sometimes send me a text. Say, hey, Rex, you know, here's a hot topic that I think our church needs to talk about. Here's something that, you know, a question I have. Um, a lot of times, you know, the, the questions that I'm answering in this series that we've been doing on hot topics are things that you've asked, things that have been brought to my attention. And um, the three that I've hit on, including today's third one, uh, are those questions. Now, as we go from here, uh, we're going to transition into preparing our hearts for Easter. I'm, I'm, you, I'm really excited um, in the next couple of weeks as we prepare for Easter uh, on the 30th, we're actually going to have a time of communion, but we're bringing in somebody, um, and it's in the bulletin, who's going to lead us as to how the Passover was actually done. So you're like, okay, so when Jesus was around the table with his disciples at the Last Supper and he did the Passover, what did that really look like? Well, we're bringing in somebody that the whole service is going to be structured around a Passover communion service, and it's going to be incredible. Um, and then the following week, we have another guest speaker coming in here. He's coming in to work with us on um, uh, some things. And so there's a lot of great things gearing up as we prepare for Easter. But after Easter, I want to return to some more uh, topics and things in which God's laid on your heart and asked questions, because I'm sure uh, a lot of you are asking similar questions. Um, and I want to I be open to that. So feel free to text me sometime with that, okay? With that being said, uh, grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, first book in the Bible. Genesis, if you need a Bible, you raise your hand, we'll bring you one. Genesis chapter 3. I don't know if you've ever gone shopping for a house, but my assumption is because everybody here basically, for the most part, lives in a house. I mean, you live in an apartment, but for, even then you are still shopping around trying to find a place to live. I want you to think back to that day, that moment, that time in your life, those multiple times in your life. Okay? Can you think back to when you said, oh boy, we've got to find a place to live. We're moving, we're relocating, uh, we're outgrowing where we were. Um, what, what, what did you go through? What experience did you face? What was that moment like? Let's start like this. How about saying it's an adventure as you walk outside into that house that you're looking at and you start just peering on the outside, okay? What kind of neighborhood? Let's talk about the neighborhood. Is it friendly? Is it peaceful? Um, is it safe? Let's talk about the location, okay? Uh, the realtors, for those of you that are, in, uh, that are realtors, you always hear location, 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 right? Okay. It's a great location. There are schools, stores. Maybe you want to be out in the country where it's peaceful and quiet. Okay? How about the yard? What does the yard look like? Do you want a yard? Is it immaculate? The landscaping, is it incredible or is it small because you don't want to take care of it? Why don't you think about that? And then the surroundings, are they what you want? 
beyond the landscaping. As you look out your back window, what are you seeing? When you come out the front door, what are you seeing? What, what are your surroundings? Okay. Outside of the house, is it in good shape? What's the, was the paint, siding? What, how's that looking? The, the roof, how's the roof? Uh, how many more years are you going to have on that before you have to replace it? Uh, garage, what kind of shape is the garage? Do you have a garage? The driveway, what's the driveway like? Stone paved, cracked, falling apart? Um, does it look like it belongs in San Francisco? Is it really, what does it look like? Okay. Let's think about it, because that's very important, right? So let's say this. You found everything you've wanted in that perfect house. The surroundings, the exterior, the landscape, everything is there. You look at it, it's like, this is incredible. Now you're fired up, right? Okay, everybody's excited? You got that perfect look outside? Everybody got that? Because mine's like, like a log cabin facing the mountains of Colorado right now, okay? Then you open up the doors and you go in. And lo and behold, you do not find what you were hoping. Carpet's outdated. Maybe it doesn't have carpet. Maybe it has carpet in certain places and other places it doesn't. Stains on the floor, maybe. Paint on the walls, chipped, cracking. Faucets are leaking. Matter of fact, and some of the, you look in the drain, it's all rusted out from where it's been dripping for a long time. Okay. House is dirty. has a musty odor to it. All of a sudden, you have this incredible disappointment because you're like, oh, it was everything I wanted on the outside. But when I stepped inside, I was severely disappointed and frustrated because it's a rack. It's going to take a lot of work to fix up the inside to match what I thought was on the outside. Anybody ever have a situation like that? Here's the deal. What really looked good on the outside becomes deceiving because on the inside it was disappointing. That really describes a lot of us. It really does. Today, you know, we're, we're like that house. We can make it look like we have it all together on the outside. But the inside's a rack. The athlete is muscular and skilled. The, the actress is beautiful, and, and the business owner has a great product. Mom drives a nice van and lives in a good neighborhood, and dad coaches Little League Baseball with a smile on his face. I mean, it's just perfect, you know. Student goes to school, gets good grades, you know, and, and does well in, in sports and music, and first chair at the flute, you know, and a bunch of friends, and, you know, dresses well and appears athletic and, you know, yeah, you have hundreds of friends on Facebook and, oh, your contact list and your phone is full and you have dozens of text messages every day and, and you're on Twitter and you've had followers. I mean, wow, you look good, right? Eesh. Then on the inside, you're alone. You hurt. Physically, emotionally, you feel like you have no one you can trust. You wonder, really, do I have purpose in life, God? What am I here for? You feel worthless. Matter of fact, you start to think, if I was gone, would anybody even notice? How many times have I sat lunch alone? How many times have I walked by a person they never said hi to me? Your faith is weak. You doubt God's love. You're alone. So it seems like it would just be easier, like that house situation, if you just walked away. And just walked away. You know, today's message in, in, in our series of hot topics is really the battle of what goes on inside here. Not just in our hearts, but in our minds. And how that leads to poor decisions and how that leads to basically the extreme point of taking one's own life. Suicide. You know, we know this past fall what happened in our area. And we know what happened to one family in our church and the pain they experienced through that moment. And I think it's time we talk about this 
and I did contact a family beforehand this week and said, I just want you to be aware that what I'm talking about Sunday, to prepare your hearts if you're able to be here. And sometimes uh, they're, uh, you know, they, they're every other week with their work schedule and didn't know. I want to prepare them uh, because I know we need to talk about it. And uh, so before we get into the scripture, I wanted to prepare you. Um, I want you to recognize that as we deal with these hot topics, whatever it may be, you know, first week we talked about abortion, we talked about homosexuality last week, this week we're talking about suicide, and I'm telling you something, all these things that we talk about, it all begins with first being deceived, and believing a lie, and then giving in to that lie that will eventually harm us. I want you to understand that in every one of these topics we talk about, that's really where it begins. So that's why we're going to Genesis chapter 3. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We go back to the very beginning of time, so let's figure this out, God. Where did this all start? How did this all happen? Genesis chapter 3, let's read verse 1. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all creatures the Lord God had made. Really? He asked the woman. Did God really say you must not eat of any of the fruit? Don't you love that? How... It's like, can you really trust God? How Satan first tosses that out there, a little seed of, of doubt into man's mind. He questions God's motives, and he makes you question God's motives. Did God really say that? Really? You really, really think he would say something like that? Let's read on. Verse 2, of course we can eat of it, the woman said. It's the only fruit from the tree at the center of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God says we must not eat it or even touch it or we'll die. Ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that what God really said? Did God really say, you, might, you can't eat of it and you can't even touch it or you'll die? Is that what God said? Actually, if you go back to chapter 2, read verses 15 to 17, it says this, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend to watch over, but the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat of the tree of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you'll surely die. Now, did, where's the part about touching it? Wait a minute, did Satan just sort of throw something else in there? He just sort of added to God's words to cause that doubt? Yeah, yeah. From what we know, it looks like Satan tossed in a little bit of extra into the conversation to get it going, right? Let's read on, verse 4. Oh, you won't die, the serpent hissed. God knows that your eyes will be opened when you eat it. You'll become just like God, knowing everything, both good and evil. How does Satan know that? I mean, he's not God, right? How does he know all this? It's called a lie. Okay? And then Satan throws in his, in his opinion as well. He sort of pits man against God. You know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. God really doesn't want that, you know, and he starts pitting man against God. So he's throwing doubt in there. Now let's look at verse 6. The woman was convinced the fruit looks so fresh and delicious, and it would make her so wise. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. Then he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. Toward evening, they heard the Lord God walking in the garden, so they hid themselves among the trees. When you read through, especially verse 6, I want you to look at a few words here. The woman was, was convinced, okay? She had her mind up here, okay? She, now listen to these, these words. She saw, she visualized, she saw the trees be beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious. 
and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. Listen to these words of desire, to see, to look. It looks delicious. See, see how it's so pleasurable? I want it. And then she gave in to that desire. In that moment, they felt shame. Let me hear you say shame. You know, when we all sin, we all mess up, we feel that. What Adam and Eve felt in, in the garden at that moment, we feel shame. Two sins took place here, and actually you can maybe go on and say more, but there, there's really two sins that took place here. And when I read through this, the first one is that disobedience of both woman and man. They both disobeyed God. They did something that was against what God said. But then here's the other sin, that was a man, to not do something. Adam just sat back and watched it all go down. Man was supposed to step up and be in charge, right? And what did man do? Men, when we don't step up, we fail. When we decide to sit back and just sort of let things happen, we take what Adam did. And that is sin just as well. When we do something and when we don't do something for God, that's sin. We need to be aware of that. So in the scriptures, we're reading this. We looked at it in verse 8. So after this all went down, what happens? They hear God in the cool of the evening. They hear God come into the garden. Can you imagine? Do you ever wonder what that sounded like? For God to enter the garden? And they hid from God. How many think you could win a game of hide and seek with God? Bad move. You're going to lose every time, right? You know, you play a game of hide and seek with God, take note, you always lose. So from the beginning of time, I want you to see this. From the beginning of time, Satan has been deceiving mankind. Very start. Satan's like, I'm out to trick you, to deceive you, to feed you lies. John 8 44 says this He was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. Everybody hear that? No truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character because he's a liar and the father of lies. John writes it down, what Jesus clearly says. Satan's a liar, a deceiver. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15 says this, When tempted, no one should say, Hey, God's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Listen to this, verse 14. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. I saw that fruit. It looks delicious. I want it. Dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived it, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Did you hear the progression there, what James says? James sort of lays this out. This is sort of Satan's plot here. Let's make it look good. I want to tempt you with this. I want you to, it's going to look good. You know, sin is pleasurable. Let's be honest. It, it is. It's pleasurable. It always looks good. Have you ever thought about when sin doesn't look good? I mean, there's probably some things out there that's like, oh, that is actually pretty gross, okay, and wrong. That's because now God's Spirit's living within you and telling you it's wrong. And you're convicted of it, and that's good. But before Christ entered your life, we'd look at certain sins, and even now we struggle with some sins, and we say, that looks, that looks good. It's because you're being tempted. Make it look good, tempt. And then a seed of desire is placed in your mind. And what happens is that seed of desire, it sort of sprouts. 
Can you imagine like when corn is planted into the earth and, and everything starts to sprout, that seed starts to sprout and take root? Desire sprouts, it takes root, and that lie, that temptation then drags you away from God's truth. Desire grows, and now sin takes place. I want you to notice, temptation and desire are not sin. Did you, did you read that in James? All this stuff took place. Let me read this again. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Oh, now it's sin once you dig into it, once you participate into it. But at that point in time, you had that evil desire, you had that temptation. When we act on that desire, then sin takes place. Sin leads to death. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Stay alert. Let me hear you say stay alert. Now, I want you to say stay alert as if you have a child that's three years old, just learning, you know, to get out there out in the driveway and a little tykes vehicle, whatever, okay? And they're heading towards the road. Now, I want to hear you say stay alert, okay? One, two, three. Okay, that's, you, that, that still isn't your real stay alert voice. I'm telling you right now, okay? You'd be screaming it, okay? Oh, hey, don't run out in traffic. Be careful, okay? Hey, look out for that car that doesn't hit you. You're not doing that. You'd be screaming. I would scream right now, but the microphone would just blow your ears, okay? One more time. Stay alert. One, two, three. Much better. Thank you. Stay alert. Watch out. Okay? Peter says this. For your great enemy, the devil. Please remember that. That's your opponent. That's your enemy. The devil. Liar. Father of lies. Prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you ever think about that? Open up the door in the morning. Do you ever walk out of the door in the morning like, ooh, wait, I better look and see if there's any lions out there. Nobody does that, do they? You just sort of open the door and fly out and you get in your vehicle or your bike or whatever and you're just gone, right? Nobody's looking for lions these days. These I'm aware of, right? Okay, good. Here's the thing, but that's what Peter's saying. When you wake up in the morning, hey, stay alert, watch out. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion ready to devour you. What if our spiritual attitude was that ever every day? Like, man, okay, gotta be alert. That desire could come in here, could sort of plot it right in my mind and sort of take seed and then that can the enticement, the desire, and then it could sprout, and then it can lead to sin. Do we really go around thinking like that? No, we just, we go, right? Okay. James says, watch out, please. Now, why do I read these verses? Because we need to remember that every issue of sin we struggle with, every sin we face comes from a lie, comes from a deception, a distorting of truth. This is good for you. This is not good for you. Then Satan takes and says, Oh, I know you said this is good for you. It's not really good for you, so you shouldn't do it. Well, I, I believe I need to get up and be disciplined in my time with God and read. Oh, you need to sleep. You need to sleep. So let's just distort that truth. This isn't good for you over here. And Satan says, oh, no, but everybody's doing You know what? You are so out of touch. Do you know what century this is? You need to be doing this. And he distorts the truth and twists it so that we will walk away from what God has created us and be destroyed. Remember John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. Destroy. It's in those moments when we start having truth distorted in our minds that we start saying to ourselves, you know what, I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not talented enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. 
I'm not loved. I'm alone. I'm messed up. God really doesn't love me. How can a holy God love a sinful me? And we take truth of who God's created us to be, and we distort it, and we listen to the lies that gets planted in our minds. So we believe a lie. And when we don't feel like we don't have worth, we don't treat ourselves with worth. Let me say that again. When we don't feel or believe we have worth, we don't treat ourselves with worth. If you really believe you're a million bucks, are you really going to treat yourself the way you do? If you really believe that you're a child of God, victorious, masterpiece, would you really treat yourself the way you do? Would I do that? Okay, I want to flash back here for a moment just to help you understand this. Back when I was dating Jenny, and I'd go over to her house in Fayette and go over and hang out at her house. I will never forget the night when I wrecked my car at her house. Now, I'll explain how this happened because it wasn't my fault, okay? I pull in behind her sister's boyfriend who has this big 4x4 truck and he's parked in the driveway off into the grass. So I pull over in the grass behind him and I've got this little Mazda sports type car and I'm excited about it and pull in and, and we're hanging out all evening and and he takes off to go goodbye, and so I'm in the living room with Jenny, and all of a sudden he comes in, he's like, um, Rex, I'm like, yeah, what's up? I hit your car. Now what he did was he, he didn't realize I was parked behind him, and so he just revved up that big 4 by 4 and <laughs> He sort of totaled the front left side, and I'll just say it like this, that drive home that night, as I drove, my front end was facing that way. So my, my seriously, my headlight, which was still intact, was like a spotlight pointing into the woods, into people's houses. I passed the state trooper. I'm surprised he didn't pull me over. I think, I think I blinded him. I think he drove by. He's like, he might have went off the road. I don't know. Um, I had to then take my car, and it was up for a month. I had a rental car for a month. Now, I'm sharing a story with you because I want you to understand this. That rental car that I had for a month, um, now, I'd love to say that I treated that rental car with gentle, loving care. You need to understand this. Your pastor isn't perfect, okay? I was heavy on the accelerator, um, hard on the brakes, didn't worry about avoiding the potholes in the road. I, don't, I know I didn't keep it clean, okay? I didn't pay for it. It's a rental. It's a loaner. We always had that joke going sometime in the youth group when we'd drive a 15-pastor van. Ah, don't worry about it. It's a rental, you know? Okay. That, that was not very good of me, okay? But I want, I want you to understand something. I didn't value it. Because I didn't value it, I didn't pay for it. They're paying for it. Insurance is paying for it, you know. I'm not paying for this. So I didn't take good care of it. So your body is the temple of God. It was bought with a price by Jesus Christ. It's been paid for. If I don't value this body, I'm going to do like I did to that rental. I'm going to be hard on it. I'm not going to treat it very well. I won't keep it clean. Matter of fact, if I hurt myself, who cares? I don't feel valued. If I don't feel valued, I'm not taking care of it. When we believe those lies of our enemy, that we have no value, that we're worthless, that we're alone, that we're uncared for, we begin to mistreat our bodies. Some go to the point of abusing themselves, cutting, biting, headbanging, scratching, burning themselves, and more. You know, for some people, it's a relief of intense emotional pain. And for others, it's like, well, I'd rather do this than a pleasurable thing, so I'm going to hurt myself. You know, I wish I could say 
that, you know, well, I'm sure we could say that the environment around us, what's going on around us, uh, plays a role in the why behind all of this. You know, we can say this too. We say, well, you can be raised, though, by godly parents. You can have a great home, but you can still succumb to suicide. So a lot of people think, well, if, I, if you're raised in the right situation, no. You know, some of you, some of you in here as parents have raised your children in the most godly way you could raise them. And yet your children at times have strayed away and you felt that pain. Okay. Now remember what it, you know, I, I said at the beginning using the illustration of the home, the outside, uh, the environment can look really pure, but on the inside it can be really messed up. Okay. Now with the feeling of worthlessness alone and shame, no hope for a future, maybe believing those lies from the enemy, People disregard what God created in His image. This is what was created in His image. You know, just right now, just, just take one of your fingers, one of your pointer fingers, okay, and just point at your chest and say, created in God's image. Go ahead, go ahead. Created in God's image. Let me hear you say it. Created in... Just make sure. You need to understand this is truth. This isn't like, Rex is making us do what again? This is so stupid. I don't want to do this, okay? I understand, okay? But see, here's the deal. We've gotten so used to not building ourselves up in certain ways that we forget truth. This was created in God's image. You were created in God's image. And, you know, when we sit there and think, why would anybody then hurt themselves to the point of death? Why would anybody take their own life? Why? Why would anybody do that? I don't know. Broken relationships, financial problems, serious illness, personal failure, loss of job, failed test, traumatic experience, heavy grief. The list goes on. But I believe where it all begins is that believing a lie about who you are, who God created you to be. When you start believing those lies, then it's easy when, when all these other things come along in life to just give in and give up. Again, there's various things going on within us about that takes place that sometimes we can't see. And so here's, here's what we're not going to do this morning. Okay, We're not going to make any eternal judgments on those people who have committed suicide. We're not going to do that. We're not going to come in with an understanding of why people there take their life and destroy it. I don't think we can fully understand that. Okay? What we will do is this. We're going to try to understand the value of life. I'm going to share some statistics with you. We're going to discover some scripture. We become a little more aware of the pain and the pain that others are struggling with and maybe we can be a beacon of hope to them for Christ. Okay? Let me share some quick stats with you. 32%, this is in U.S. colleges. U.S. colleges. 32% of students are engaged in dangerous behavior right now. One out of every three students in college are engaged in some kind of dangerous behavior in which they now contemplate suicide. 15 to 22% of all adolescents and young adults have intentionally injured themselves. That's one out of every five. Every year, one million people on this planet commit suicide. It is the third leading cause for death in ages 15 to 24, which that rate has increased 60 percent in the last 45 years. Now there's one school in Washington, D.C., uh, Nick Vujicic. I don't know if you've ever seen Nick Vujicic before. Um, he's written a few books. You've probably seen motivational videos on him maybe on YouTube. No arms, um, no legs. Uh, he goes around speaking. Incredible man uh, of God. He spoke at a school in Washington, D.C. and shared an assembly. And at that school, he sort of did this poll with all the students at the school. 75 percent of students at that school had suicidal thoughts. 75%. 80 attempts had been made in one year. 
That's America's school system in some areas, some areas. Trust me, there are more stats. I'm not going to go all through, but I think you get the idea. Bottom line is, life seems impossible to many. Hope seems gone for many. So why try? Just give up, right? Where's the hope? Where's the belief? You know, I was at Defiance College this past week uh, working with the, the football team. We had a little team building exercise night. And um, we took a 26-inch, this is a little stretched out now, a 26-inch uh, bicycle tube, okay, off of the tire. Uh, it was probably looked more like this when we started. And I said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get in your groups of six or seven. They had teams made up. I said, we're going to get back to back. And you're going to take this and put it over your head. And they put it over their head and around their waist. And we had like seven or eight of these big college football players with this tube around them. And I said, now give them a basketball. And they had to go around and make, there's six baskets. And they had to make six baskets. So they're scooting around. And it's pretty fun watching these football players do this. I said, oh, okay, that was cool. Uh, now let's, let's, let's put more in there. You've got, what, seven in there? Let's put 12 in there. Oh, you know, these guys, especially the offensive linemen. What? Okay. So they, uh, they put 12 people inside, 12 college football players inside this. This is around their waist. Imagine this being their belt, okay? And uh, they did it again. I said, all right. We had about 40 of them there. I think we can put all of you in one. No, no way. Let's try it. I've got a picture on my phone of this inner tube around 40 football players around their waist, okay? Now, we got done with that, and uh, after every game we do, we break it down and share some things, and I share scripture with them, and, and I asked them this question. I said, how many of you believe that you're going to be able to put seven of you around that inner tube around you and go around and shoot hoops? How many of you thought you could not do this? And I'm going to say about 25% of them raised their hands. Okay, fair. How about, how many of you thought when I said get 12 of you in there, how many of you thought there's no way we can do this? A little more than half of the hands went up. Then when I said, how about everybody fit inside that inner tube? How many of you thought there's no way we can do this? They all raised their hand. Not one player believed that they would be able to do it. I said, hmm. Isn't it amazing when you have no faith that you accomplish nothing? If you don't believe it can happen, if you don't trust God for certain things, guess what? It's not going to happen. You're right. No goals, guess where you're going to go? Nowhere. Right? When you stop believing, when you have no hope, you're at a loss. You are defeated. What gets us to the point in our minds that God's not there for us, that God can't help us? How, how do we get there? You know, I believe our enemy Satan is out to destroy our younger generation. I really do. You know, if, if you're 30 and below right now, I'm going to tell you something. You've got, a, you've got a bullseye on your back bigger than you understand. Because if Satan can take you out, he takes out another generation. He's feeding you lies quicker than you can digest them. I want you to listen to this statistic by Barna Group. 60% of kids today disconnect from the church at age 15. Did you hear that? 60% of today's uh, kids disconnect from the church at age 15. They turn 15, 16, they stop coming to church. Parents, I'm going to challenge you with something, okay? One place... You can find truth. The one place you can find encouragement, the one place that you can find hope, it's here. And yet it's not important to some. Now, if, I'm sorry, parents, but I'm going to say this. In our, in our house, church is a non-negotiable. That's where I grew up. It's a non-negotiable. We're going to church. Why would we not go to church? 
It's non-negotiable. And listen to me, you wouldn't let your child miss school, right? You wouldn't let your child miss a sporting event. You wouldn't let your child miss all these different things, okay? But as our kids are in danger, they walk this planet from place to place, here's the one place they can find truth, at a church, in a youth group. Okay? So parents, let me encourage you. Non-negotiable. 60% of kids disconnect from the church at age 15. They're in danger. There needs to be a place where they are with other Christians. They need to be plugged in. Okay? I won't challenge you that. A couple things here. Let's, let's, let's move forward here. Um, repeat after me. You're not alone. Look at the person next to you and tell them you're not alone. Mm, that's a good thing, right? Listen, you may be angry with God. You might be angry with me right now for what I just said, but I'm telling you this. Maybe you believe nobody understands your pain. Maybe, maybe you possibly have negative thoughts about yourself. Here's my encouragement to you. You're not alone. You're so not alone. The Bible records all different kinds of accounts of people who, who fell into shame and handled it. I, I think probably one of the most popular ones, especially coming up right now at Easter time, if you look in the Bible, would be Judas Iscariot, who after betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, went and hung himself on the gallows. In the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, they felt shame. Jacob felt shame for how he deceived his brother Esau and tried to make amends. Joseph, his brothers, they, they lived with shame as, you know, they, they, they left them. In the New Testament, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, and in shame, he ran and wept and away from the temple area. I'm telling you, as Christians, we may live with past embarrassment and shame. It's going to happen. It is. Shame can make us doubt that our Savior loves us enough to forgive us. It makes us feel like we have to punish ourselves. How do I deal with this, right? Even when we know that Jesus already took the punishment for himself, we feel like we have to punish ourselves too. Shame can become a toxic thing in the life of a Christian. Truth is, God is bigger than any of our problems. Truth is, God looks at our sins and forgives us when we seek forgiveness. The problem is that our negative thoughts and emotions overwhelm us and they rob us of that truth. We shouldn't have that kind of shame when we've sought forgiveness. Shame can be a good thing when we've messed up and we've not asked for forgiveness. Shame drives us to the cross to seek forgiveness. That can be good. But once we're forgiven, we are forgiven. But yet we still walk in shame. I'm not alone. You are not alone. There's others who have gone through this and are going through this. You're not alone. Repeat after me. You are loved. Now find somebody and look at them and say, you're loved. Go for it. All right, now you looked at one person. Now look at another person. Tell them you're loved. Tell another person. Very good. John 3, 16, what does it say? God what? God loves us. The most basic verse in the Bible of truth. Okay? The other one's on the front of your, on the front of your bulletin. Take a look at it. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Look at this. We're just going to read this one right off the front. There's so much more. If you start at verse 35 and read through 39, but if you look at the front of your bulletin, it says this, And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power. Let me hear you say no power. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. That's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. That is truth. 
Dream it up. Think whatever you can that can separate you from God's love. Go ahead, think of it. Let me tell you this. Nothing includes that. Nothing can separate you from God's love. In spite of your weakness, our lacking, our hopelessness, our mistakes, our feelings of shame, loneliness, whatever it is, God loves you. God loves you. That's truth. You find it here in God's Word. As we gather together as a church, God loves you. And when you set the truth aside and begin to listen to the lies of Satan, that you are not loved, that you are alone, creeps in, that's when bad things happen. I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. Nobody likes me. God's too holy to love me. Those are lies of Satan that get planted in your mind. They take root, they sprout, they grow. Destructive thoughts begin, and people end up hurting themselves. South Korea, leading cause of death, ages 20 to 40, is suicide. 20 to 40. So all of you in here are 40 and under. That's the leading cause of death. The fourth leading cause for all ages, cancer, stroke, heart disease. And then what's the fourth one again? Suicide. November of 2008, 1,700 South Koreans took their life. 1,700 in one month. How could that be? This is what they said. Seeking help is seen as an embarrassing admission to a flawed character. Oh, I don't want to admit that I'm messed up. Why would I do that? I don't want to admit to anybody that I'm messed up. So I'm just going to keep it to myself and I hurt. Listen, please. Since the day that sin entered the world, we're all flawed. Okay? No one in here is flawless. Okay? So let's admit it. Let's seek help from a Savior who loves us and wants to walk with us. You are loved. You know, if you turn to the book of Job, chapter 23, as a matter of fact, would you turn there, please? Job chapter 23. We're going to close on this. Here's what happened to Job. As you're turning to Job 23, Job is described as a blameless man, a man full of integrity, feared God, stayed away from evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. He was the richest man in the area. He sounds like he has it all together, right? The outside of the house is looking good, okay? Then there's some deep concern that he shows for his kids as well. If you read in there, he says every night or every morning he would offer sacrifices for his kids. He'd pray for them. He loved his kids. He loved them deeply. Now take note. If you're committed to God, you're a target for Satan. Okay? I just want to throw that out there. Okay? Because he wants people to hate and curse God. And if you're doing that, if you're, if you're not committed to God or doing anything for him, you don't have to worry about Satan attacking you. Okay? You're not a threat. Not a threat. Okay? But when you are committed to God, you are a threat. And this is what happened to Job. He was a threat. Oxen and donkeys are taken away. Farmhands are killed. Fire of God falls from heaven, burns up sheep and shepherds. The Chaldean raiders come in, steal camels, kills uh, the servants. Wind sweeps in, and the house where all the children are gathered for feast kills them all. In less than a few minutes, Job lost everything. Everything. His riches, his family, everything. And yet he did not blame God. And then soon Satan struck Job with these terrible boils from toe to head. Terrible boils. Hurt. He'd sit there with broken pottery. Sounds like he was sort of suicidal. And he would scrape his skin, it says in the scripture. And his wife, oh, great encouragement from your spouse. Why don't you just curse God and die? Great marriage, okay? She was hurting too, wasn't she? I think we forget about that sometimes. She lost her children too and everything. But did, God, did Job do that? No. But check out what happens in chapter 23. Even today, my complaint is bitter. 
His hand's heavy in spite of my groaning. If I only knew where to find God, if I could only go to his dwelling, I'd state my case before him. I'd fill my mouth with arguments. I'd find out what he, what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, no, no. He would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him. There I'd be delivered forever from my judge. Now listen very carefully. If I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I can't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. And, and when he turns to the south, I cannot catch a glimpse of him. What is Job saying? I'm trying to find God in all this. And it hurts right now, and I don't know where he's at. Okay, now listen very carefully. He takes a deep breath, and then his next sentence is this. But God knows the way that I take. Did you hear that? God knows the way that I take. I may feel like God's not in this right now. The truth is, he is. He knows the way I take. He knows what my decision's going to be tomorrow, what I'm going to say right now. He knows it. And when he's tested me, I will come forth as gold. What's the words of Job? My feet have closely followed his steps. I've kept to his way without turning aside. I've not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Listen, God knows you. God loves you. Do not depart from him. Do not depart from him. Worship team, would you come forward, please? We uh, mentioned 1 Peter 5, 8 before. I want to see, show you the sandwich effect of 1 Peter 5, 8, what I mean by that, the verse before and the verse after now. I want to read to you 1 Peter 5, verses 7 through 9. Let me back up. Let me read verse 8 so you can remember it, okay? Stay alert. Yeah, okay, now you remember. Okay. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Remember that? Okay. Let's back up one verse. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out, for your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Verse 9, stand firm. Would you please stand with me? Let's stand firm. Okay. Stand firm. Let me hear you say stand firm. Be strong in your faith. Let me hear you say be strong. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering as you are. Let me hear you say I'm not alone. Listen, you're not alone. You're loved by the God of this universe, and you can be a beacon of hope to others. It starts with us first, understanding this. Do not let those seeds of doubt and lies and deception get planted in here. Know the truth. And as you know the truth, take that truth to others. You know who's hurting. You know who's struggling, who's depressed who feels alone right now. You know them. There's signs, there's behavioral warnings, there's all kinds of great websites out there that will help us understand these things even more. You can go read all the statistics you want. They're out there. It's, it's, an, it's an issue. It really is. And we, we've got the answer. Amen? Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We've got it. We've got the good news. So as we stand firm, and as we stand with a God who loves us, and as we stand with others who understand what suffering is about, we're not alone, right? Let's be the church and take this love to others. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome and mighty God. Lord, I do not fully understand why anybody would take their life. All I know is that it hurts. It hurts those that are left behind. 
It hurts people that stand off at a distance and leaves them confused. But Lord, what we do know is that it starts with deception, starts with lies. So I thank you for truth. I thank you that you're a God that loves us, a God that does not leave us alone. You are with us. I thank you that you give us a church. You give a small group for the ladies, for the men. You, you have a youth group for the kids. There's opportunities where, where we can come together and read truth. Thank you, God, for that. Lord, as we sing this song to you now, Lord, work in our hearts. Remind us of truth. Lord, lay upon our hearts somebody that maybe we know we need to talk to. We just can't think who that is. Lord, put that person on our mind right now. Who is that we need to go share your love with? Make sure they know that they're not alone. Lord, speak to us as we worship you. In our name we pray. Amen.